This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is A Short History of Trans Misogyny by Jules Gill-Peterson. In search of the emergence of modern trans misogyny, award-winning historian and former Dig guest Gil Peterson draws connections between the colonial and military districts of the British Raj, the Philippines, and Hawaii to the lively travesti communities of Latin America, where state violence has stamped the trans label on vastly different ways of life. Weaving together stories of historical figures in a rich narrative, the book shows how trans femininity emerged under colonial governments, the sex work industry, and the policing of urban public spaces. This is the first book to explain why trans women are burdened by such a weight of injustice and hatred. A Short History of Trans Misogyny by Jules Gill-Peterson, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the first episode of Thaura, The Dig's new series on 20th century Arab politics with historian Abdel Razak Takriti. Thaura is Arabic for revolution. It's a word that contains historical multitudes, diverse political radicalisms and revolts that have swept across Arab lands over the past century. This is by far the dig's most ambitious project ever. Today, Israel's embattled legitimacy rests upon the mystification of the fundamental coloniality of modern Middle Eastern history, very much including the Middle Eastern present. Since October 7th, then, this podcast has been attempting to systematically counter the official obscurantism parroted everywhere from the White House to the New York Times, by studying the plain factual history of Zionism, of Palestine, and of the broader region. My series with Abdel Razak, or Abid for short, is about the history of 20th century Arab politics, particularly the multifarious Arab political radicalisms that flourished as most of the colonized Arab world achieved formal independence and after the Nakba violently imposed the state of Israel on an ethnically cleansed Palestine. Arab nationalism, socialism, communism, Baathism, and Islamism. In this first episode, we step back before 1948 to provide deeper context for the Western imperialism that has structured Arab politics through today. We analyze late Ottoman politics and society and undertake a broad examination of the history of European colonialism and imperialism in the region— from Napoleon's 1798 invasion of Egypt to Britain's treaty with Oman that same year, through the 19th century extension of British and French power across North Africa and the Persian Gulf, to World War I, when the British promised Sharif Hussein an Arab kingdom in former Ottoman lands in exchange for Arabs rising up against the Ottomans during World War I, a promise that the British would not keep. The result was Britain and France, victorious in World War I, dismantling the Ottoman Empire and carving its Arab lands up between themselves as part of the mandate system, a system in which the British disastrously reserved Arab Palestine for European Jewish settler colonization. 
This series is mostly about the Arab Mashriq, the eastern Arab lands that run from Egypt down to the Arabian Peninsula and up through the Levant to Iraq. But colonial designs and revolutionary currents alike often swept westward across North Africa through the Arab Maghreb. So we'll discuss that region too at times. This series will be, I think, pretty gigantic. At this point, I, I don't have any clue when it's going to end. But, but we've already recorded maybe six hours, and Abed is absolutely brilliant. And I'm excited that we'll be providing a synthetic overview of 20th century Arab politics and political radicalisms, something that, to my knowledge, does not exist in written or any other form in the English language. Before we get started, briefly... If you appreciate the work that we do here, if you depend on us for analysis that you can't find anywhere else, please support The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig. We have mugs, tote bags, books to send you, depending on where you live and how much you contribute. And every donor of any amount anywhere on earth gets our excellent newsletter, written by Ben Maybe, delivered to your email inbox. But the most important reason that you should contribute is because we're supported overwhelmingly by listeners like you who voluntarily choose to contribute. We do not use paywalls to coerce donations from you because, above all else, this is a political education project, and we want every person possible to listen regardless of their ability or even inclination to pay. And what's amazing is that our model works. So if you can't afford to contribute, if you appreciate what we're doing here and appreciate that we keep every episode paywall-free, please make a donation now at patreon.com slash the dig. There is a link in the show notes. Please click it now. Thanks. And here's Abdel Razak Takriti, who teaches history at Rice University, a scholar of Arab and Palestinian revolutionary movements. He's the author of Monsoon Revolution, Republicans, Sultans, and Empires in Oman, and the co-author of The Palestinian Revolution, Digital Humanities Website, an incredible resource that will be back online soon. Abdel Razak Takriti, welcome to The Dig. Hi. Recently, I did a two-part interview with Usama Magdisi about the Nada and how, beginning in the final decades of the Ottoman Empire, Arabs in the Mashriq worked to build this ecumenical Arab identity and politics that would encompass Muslim Arabs, Christian Arabs, and Jewish Arabs. How did that prior moment that I was discussing with Usama, this, this intellectual and political ferment around articulating a sort of Arab political modernity— how did those ideological currents, how did they lay the groundwork for this broader set of political radicalisms that come to dominate the second half of the 20th century? Nationalism, socialism, communism, Baathism, and ultimately Islamism. I think it's very important, Daniel, to go back to the political history of the region when we're exploring this question. And we need to understand the difference or the fundamental difference between political parties, movements, and associations in the Ottoman period, and the ones that developed later on during the early uh, period of British uh, and French occupation, uh, and later on in the post-independence period. Uh, and each period had, had a different set of challenges confronting people that was reflected in the nature of the movements that emerged 
within that period. Also, each period had different sociological features. So if we start in the Ottoman period, we would notice that the working class was very small. So the idea of organizing an industrial proletariat along second internationalist lines, for example, would have been uh, very difficult. And indeed, there were attempts to engage in that sort of organizing, but there were limitations. Um, so you have intellectual histories that point out to, to uh, socialist movements and, and different attempts at uh, forming formations uh, here and there. And indeed, there were, and I do write about this, there were movements that were concerned, for example, with socialism uh, and later on with, with building even more radical forms of socialism. Uh, but in the, in the late Ottoman period, industrialization was much more limited than uh, what took place later on, certainly in the Arab lands. So the other sociological feature to bear in mind is that in, during the Ottoman uh, period, uh, you had a largely agrarian population with a substantial urban population centered around major towns. However, that urban population was engaged uh, for the most part uh, in trading activities, or in small manufacturing activities that uh, were dependent on cottage industries and crafts and artisanal uh, classes. So again, when we're thinking about the uh, class composition that, of course, is important for understanding political life, uh, these are important facts to, to bear in mind. Later on, we get greater urbanization. Later on, we get uh, greater industrialization. Later on, we get uh, new developments that produce different sorts of demands. It would be, uh, for example, ridiculous to talk about proletarian industrial uh, demands to farmers, for example. It wouldn't make sense to organize farmers along these lines. Later on, of course, that becomes one of the big challenges of Arab left-wing movements. And it's not until uh, they engage uh, with uh, more Maoist messaging that they start to think about uh, some of these dimensions. Sometimes there was a lot of mix-up around this in analysis because there was an attempt to, to apply Eurocentric ideas and terminologies and practices to a different sociological reality. So let's compare the Ottoman challenges and the challenges confronting Ottoman political life and those that came later. During the Ottoman period, most uh, political parties and movements were established by the educated classes. Uh, folks that were either in positions of potential leadership uh, on the imperial level or on the local level. And many of them could be classified as belonging to that class that we refer to as the uh, Ottoman notables. However, of course, uh, there were new developments that led to the rise of what Osama Maqdisi and others write about in that period uh, and referred to as the Nahda, uh, which is, of course, the Arab uh, Renaissance that emerges in the uh, late 19th century. There are many developments that produce that. There is uh, the rise of uh, major industrialization and modernization in Egypt led by Muhammad Ali, and that leads to the development of new intellectual trends and classes that uh, often came even from greater Syria, but ended up in Egypt. There is 
the rise of the printing industry and the press uh, at a much greater scale, there's an intellectual class appearing. But what's interesting is that members of this class tended to either engage in public intellectual activities or to join associations that were quite underground that often took the, the, the form similar to the associations that were founded in Europe in the 19th century contemporaneously. So there's many societies, for example, that looked similar to the Carbonari. There's many societies that had Masonic influences even. So you have this form reflecting the, the new trend of the rise of new intellectual classes or confronting the challenges of an empire that was facing a crisis, a cri- an internal crisis of direction, yet an empire that had announced a major modernization program and uh, sometimes was committed to it, sometimes it was not. It, it took different iterations, political, economic, and, and social. And of course, nowadays we question the very term modernity, you know, but definitely there was change in the air. So where was this change going to head was the big question for people at the time. If you were somebody who had been influenced by Republican ideas, for example, uh, which were very prevalent in the 19th century, you were going to think about questions of constitutional rule, questions of limits to the power of the sultan. And that became a big element in the political life of the period. If you belong to the Arab provinces, and we are concerned with that region here of the Ottoman Empire, you were very concerned about the relationship of these provinces to the imperial center, especially uh, as the, the very nature of that center begins to be changed and altered uh, as a result of developments in the Balkans and in Anatolia and elsewhere. So where is the place of Arabs in that formula? That becomes a big question. And of course, those two issues uh, produce uh, a concern with constitutionalism and debates around the question of centralization or decentralization of the empire. These are some of the big questions that were posed at the time. And you see uh, that Arab political life, mainstream political life in this, in this period, is also shaped by the introduction of elections in the Ottoman period. So people start developing parties or joining parties that had an electoral mandate. Uh, most notably, this, this becomes uh, you know, very clear after the 1908 constitutional revolution in the Ottoman Empire. And you see it, especially in periods like the 1912 election, which was heavily contested across the empire, but including in the Arab lands. You know, you had people that that joined the Freedom and Accord Party and the alliance that was formed around it. And people, of course, that were part of the Committee of Union and Progress. Almost every major town in greater Syria and Iraq had in it people that were accordists or that were Unionists. So one emphasized elements of decentralization, you know, the other was more oriented towards centralization. There were, of course, other differences there. But that debate becomes irrelevant after the end of the empire. Because the question is no longer about centralization or decentralization. So the very nature of political life 
after the Ottoman period gets adjusted on the sociological level because of the changes that I referred to earlier, urbanization, introduction of industry and so on. Some of these changes already started in the Ottoman period, but they picked up steam later on. And secondly, beyond the sociological changes and the new classes, social classes that they produce, there's also a change in the very nature of the overall political challenges facing society, which means that the big questions that anybody who who was thinking of joining political life in this period were asking were substantially different now. We'll be discussing many bitter, sometimes violent differences among Arab political radicals, ideological, sectarian, national, otherwise. Still, what leaps out to me is how common the core themes and concerns are for really diverse political traditions in the region. When studying modern Arab political thought, what can we make of these shared preoccupations and themes? Namely, if you'll agree, namely that each of these distinct bodies of thought were commonly developed as proposed solutions to Western colonialism and imperialism, that so many Arabs, at least those who weren't conservative reactionary monarchists, so many believed that to be the modern Arab world's central problem. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, already that's, that's a theme that's important in the Ottoman period. One of the big questions of around change had to do with how to confront this external challenge that was actually reshaping not just this part of the world, but the whole globe. And I think it's very important, Daniel, to not think of this purely in reactive terms and not to think about it purely in uh, local terms. Sometimes the Orientalist tradition tends to overemphasize both. Uh, discussions of modernization, they, you know, the classic story is the West comes in, uh, they pose a challenge, and they also bring new ideas. The locals adopt them, and uh, they try to implement them, but they ultimately fail for the most part, and some of them uh, slightly succeed. If we like them, we'll overemphasize their success. If we later on change our mind about them, We'll talk about them in more derogatory terms. And, and really, we have to challenge the whole framework. Because first of all, we have to challenge the main concept on which this framework uh, was based. And it was the, the big concept of the 19th century, especially in Europe, was the concept of civilization and civilized nations. So all of this so-called political, economic uh, uh, modernity and cultural modernity and so on was supposed to be the defining feature of what counts as, quote-unquote, a civilized nation. Of course, you know, anybody who has uh, any progressive inclinations will question this logic of civilization, especially because it was tied to uh, the idea of rights in this case. If you were counted as civilized, you had more rights than others, and you had more privileges than others, and you had more freedoms than others. And there is a big debate on the literature on how reactive people were when they were considering questions of change. And there's a big debate on the literature on what counts as Western and what doesn't. So, for example, why think of change as belonging to the quote-unquote West when Germany itself, for example, in the 19th century was asking similar questions to the ones that were asked in the Ottoman Empire? You know, we know anybody who studied the trajectory of people like Marx himself and others, 
know that they came out of a generation of German intellectuals that were grappling with what they refer to as German, quote-unquote, backwardness in relation to Britain and, and, and France. They wanted to catch up. They spoke about questions of disunity. They spoke about questions of lack of industrialization. They spoke of questions uh, relating to military capacity and, and economic capacity. The French Revolution uh, posed a big challenge for them. They spoke of secularization and the place of religion. And that's in a major European environment. So why do we call this a Western issue and not call it a 19th century issue, for example? You know, of course, everybody in the 19th century had to grapple with the rise of major powers that were quite parasitical, quite expansionist, very aggressive, and had achieved a Promethean leap industrially and economically, which meant that they also achieved military superiority. And that military superiority and economic superiority was felt in the uh, Arab Ottoman lands for sure. It was felt on every level. It was felt in ways that were quite intense for merchants, for example, who had to grapple with things like uh, free trade agreements. Uh, I mean, I know we talk a lot about free trade agreements today, but they were a feature of 19th century life. And the Anglo-Ottoman free trade agreement was hugely debilitating for a lot of local producers and merchants in that, in that period. They were grappling not only with, with the entry of these products from Britain and other European countries, they were also grappling with their military power and interventions. And we saw this happen time and time again. It's the British, for example, that uh, ensured the success of the Greek Revolution, the first major nationalist uh, separation from the Ottoman Empire uh, of that kind to take place. It's them that uh, made sure that Muhammad Ali was, was defeated and driven, driven out of uh, Bilad al-Sham, of Greater Syria. So their interventions were already felt. But they, get, they intensify throughout the 19th century to the extent that they start getting involved in debt. And then they start taking over countries directly. And we saw this, of course, in Egypt, when the British went and, and used uh, the crisis there as an excuse to actually occupy the place directly and put it essentially uh, under the sphere of British colonialism for the next uh, few decades. And that had huge implications for everybody. And you had uh, the French entry earlier even into, into Algeria. You had the, the, the French uh, takeover of uh, Tunisia and the establishment of dual authority there. You have the British expansion uh, in the late 18th century uh, in the context of the Napoleonic Wars into the Gulf. And that was really the first big expansion uh, in the region of, of a colonial kind on that level. Uh, you know, they were trying to contain uh, Napoleon's attacks on India and, and they wanted to make sure that the uh, Gulf uh, would remain a buffer zone for the British in India. So they started signing treaties with Oman. For, uh, that was the first one, 1798. And then they kept on signing uh, treaties, which were so-called treaties of, uh, of peace and friendship. But they were basically actually treaties that established for British colonialism for a long, long time in that part of the world. Um, so what we're talking about is not a theoretical engagement with the 
so-called West. It's an actual real and, and very felt entry of colonialism in the Ottoman period to the region in the late Ottoman period. And then by the time we get to the 20th century, everybody's colonized. You know, you look in the, you know, the process starts in the late 18th century with Egypt temporarily gets taken over by Napoleon. The Gulf, as I mentioned, becomes a sphere of influence for the British and the Pax Britannica is established there. And then Aden, of course, is taken over in the 1830s. And then you move on. Algeria is taken in that decade as well. By the time we head to the 1880s, we have Egypt and Tunisia joining the map. Sudan falls. You know, everybody else then falls after the Great War. And the only bits that remain free of direct intervention, but actually are indirectly absorbed into the imperial sphere, are places like Najd, which is the core of what's now modern-day Saudi Arabia. But even Najd, the, the, the British are so deeply embroiled in Al Saud politics, and they play such an important role in supporting them in this period, that, that you can't think of that space as politically independent of these dynamics. And of course, the region becomes a space for aspiring colonial powers as well. You know, the southern European states, like Italy, establishes a foothold in Libya. You know, and of course, uh, does adventures in Somalia as well, colonial entries into that. And, you know, and then you have like uh, the, the Spanish entering into the Moroccan Reef. So these are not abstract issues. And I think when people belittle that, and there used to be a huge trend of belittling it, they, they, would, they would say, well, you're complaining about colonialism all the time. They, they, they would tell Arabs all the time, I'm like, of course we are. <laughs> yeah. That's our reality. Yeah. You know? it's, not, it's not like incidental or one kind of, just one factor among many. It becomes just fundamental to the entire region and remains so through the present moment. Absolutely. And it has, as a result, it fundamentally reshapes the political conversation. What was in the Ottoman period a mixed political conversation about how to prevent more losses of land to these European powers. Uh, there were also genuine social questions being posed. You know, this is when, by the way, um, although I said like you didn't have the, the the sociological reality that could produce a mass, for example, socialist movement in in the nineteenth century, but there were big debates around socialism, and of course, there 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 is a phenomena going on. Anybody that follows the Arab press in that period will see that concepts are being discussed and debated. We'll see that there are movements formed here and there. So there are social questions being posed. There are cultural questions. And there are educational and pedagogical questions. We have the expansion of schooling, the changes in the nature of education and so on. And by the way, that field, there's always been a big school of thought that rejected the traditional story of uh, Arabs adopt the work of missionaries and adopt the work of uh, uh, Westerners, and that's how they achieve modern education. You know, Abdul Latif Tebawi, the great Palestinian historian, who uh, happens to come from my mom's town, actually. So um, he was uh, uh, very adamant at uh, talking about the fact that 
you already had trends within Ottoman education that were internal and that were internally heading towards change. There's no question that external influences helped expedite that. But that was a conversation that was going on globally anyways. You know, not everything good can be attributed to colonialism and and not everything bad can be disattributed to colonialism as some historians try to do. Ultimately, we, we need to discuss what the Arab state system in the Mashrik looked like after the mandate period, after 1948. But first, we need to talk about the European colonial mandate system that's in place after the end of the Ottoman Empire. And yet, even before that, we should discuss colonialism in the late Ottoman period in those Arab lands of the region, not under Ottoman control. How did British power take shape in the region in the 19th and even late 18th century? So when, when the British and the French first started entering the Arab uh, political sphere, and here we're talking about, by the way, multiple spheres, not just one, because there were areas of the Arab region or the region that is part of the Arab League today. Many parts of that region uh, were under Ottoman control, but there were many other parts that were not. There was the Omani Empire, for example, and that Omani Empire gets absorbed into the British imperial system through a negotiation with the ruler. And negotiation, of course, we have to be very careful with that word and, and always understand that these, these words are entail a great deal of coercion, but also uh, they entail a great deal of uh, containment of local political space outside the uh, walls of the ruler's palace. But basically, uh, you had a trend of attempting to achieve colonial influence through local uh, rulers initially. And you saw that in multiple places. All of what is now known as the Gulf region, that rule applied to it. And in fact, that rule, and this is something that uh, I talk a lot about in my scholarship, that rule ossified political life in that region. Because it meant that each political ruler was now permanently on the throne as a result of imperial backing that was far more powerful than local forces. So the state, the features of the Gulf state system were already laid out in a way as a result of the way colonialism entered there. The typical uh, strategy that the British deployed was to come in, get the ruler to uh, agree to uh, uh, an agreement with them. With the Omanis, it was about containing the the French and containing Napoleon's ambitions in India. With other Gulf forces later on, they claimed to be combating piracy, which is equivalent to war on piracy. The 19th century was equivalent to the war on terror now. You know, it's really not about piracy, but it it was about geopolitics. But they used this excuse to basically... Uh, wage a a huge expansion campaign across uh, the Gulf. And we end up then with rulers signing agreements and then becoming, as a result of this agreement, subservient to Britain, yet at the same time permanently on the throne. Dynastic rule that is resilient to the very present. These are the dynasties that have not been shaken by any revolution in the 20th century or earlier. All of those rulers that signed with the British from the late uh, 18th century onwards are still 
in place now because, uh, of course, the Americans take up their security guarantee later on. And these people are willing to go to war for, for these rulers to stay in power. Of course, oil becomes a determining factor for that after it's discovered. But before that, there were geopolitical factors uh, that were very important that had to do with uh, calculations mainly relating to the government of India. Saudi Arabia is also a different dynamic because Saudi Arabia had to do with the politics of the interior for the British. Najd was always about containment, not about direct control. And the British also had less of an ability to engage in direct warfare there. In the, in the Gulf in general, the British strategy was what you would call gunpowder diplomacy and gunboat diplomacy, actually. So uh, if, if you have a ruler trying to challenge them in any way, all what you needed to do was bomb the port, destroy it, which, of course, with superior naval power you had. And remember, these are areas that are coastal areas. They're dependent on trade, primarily, or occupations related to the sea. So if you bomb their ports or threaten to do so, and they did indeed bomb the ports. They bombed the ports of the Qawasim, for example, who are now the rulers of Ras al-Khaimah and Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates. And those were formidable naval power in the 19th century. And that became a lesson for them. First of all, it's, it, uh, it decreased their power. And secondly, it forced them to enter into uh, negotiations with the British and later on to basically follow their directives for the most part. Later on, some of them start challenging these directives, but then they get punished. But for what we're talking about, to clarify for the listeners then, is that Gulf Coast stretching from Oman all the way up to Kuwait, but the area uh, in the eastern part of uh, uh, what is now Saudi Arabia, that's always more complicated. Uh, because uh, th- that area initially had still Ottoman influence in it. And even Kuwait is a bit more complicated. It enters this British arrangement a bit later on, but similar rules apply to it. So uh, there's Ottoman influence in it for, for a long time that keeps uh, the British not entirely out, but, but it creates a counterbalance to it. Of course, you know, the further you, you, uh, away you get from the main Ottoman centers, like Basra, which was the main center for the Gulf region, the more you have space for uh, British infiltration. And that's what happens for the most of the southern Gulf, for sure. For a long time, this has been conventionally referred to as indirect rule. Is, is that the right way to think about the arrangement between colonial powers and local monarchs? So if the original Gulf model was to preserve local structures, but co-opt them. In the Maghrib, the same rule applied in a place like Tunisia, which had fallen under French control there. Uh, Usually, we used to speak of those places in terms of indirect rule. That used to be the terminology, certainly in British imperial historiography. I had the misfortune of uh, studying that uh, formally at, at the main place that produced that kind of thinking, which was which was in, in Oxford, and uh, of course uh, that thinking is not is not very helpful for anybody that does not believe in colonialism or in in its frameworks. So um, when you look at this British imperial and Commonwealth terminology, they used to refer to it as indirect rule, but of course indirect rule now has been challenged. People are speaking more 
in, in terms of divided rule. They're talking about a situation where you still have a local ruling authority. They're kept by the colonial power. They're not entirely removed, largely because it's cheaper or more convenient or because there's an inter-imperial rivalry going on. So it's easier to, to keep it so that uh, other imperial parties uh, do not complain too much. So that's what happened in Oman, by the way, for example. The British needed to keep the local ruler in place, and there were some limits to what they could do with them, partly because they had understandings with the French over that. And and the same happens in Tunisia with the French. But basically, the features there are similar to uh, the features that you see also in Morocco. You know, when the French enter Morocco and, and the Spanish, they do not remove the uh, sultan and they do not remove what becomes later on the king, of course, they do not remove the local ruler, but they co-opt. And when those rulers pose a challenge, then they're treated really badly, as as happened with uh, Muhammad al-Khamis, Muhammad V, for example, who gets exiled. And and that often then uh, opens up spaces for anti-colonial challenges locally. People start coalescing around this ruler, even if they didn't fully agree with them or if they were more radical than, than them in terms of their stances. But they see it as an opening to challenge colonials. Um, so there are some exceptions, though. In some places, they do remove the rulers completely and they adopt a more radical program, a radical colonial program. And that happens, for example, in Algeria. And in Algeria, the interesting uh, fact there and the main reason why you know, this was uh, uh, very convenient, the fact that you destroyed local uh, authority in its entirety. Um, of course, that's a gradual process. It doesn't happen day and night. It's not, it's not like the prince just show up and everything disappears. You know, there are princes and they fight and, you know, there is a huge struggle against the French that goes on and there are local structures that continue. But they take a more aggressive policy there that later on facilitates for... Uh, settler colonial model there. So that becomes a distinguishing feature, whereas you find uh, some settler colonists in Tunisia and, and, and Morocco, the, the, it's not comparable. The scale and, the, of course, the objectives and the, and the ambitions are much more aggressive in a place like Algeria. So that's not the norm, again. Generally speaking, colonial powers in this part of the world tended to work through co-opting local structures. When they enter Egypt, same thing. They don't remove Muhammad Ali's family. The family stays technically in power, but the British take over many of the main areas relating to political and economic life, and they're really in charge. Now, there are big debates in the national histories of each country around the extent to which the local power had authority, but we all know and the dominant political authority, the paramount political authority, was always the colonial power. Even if the local rulers tried to expand their domain of uh, influence, especially when it came to domestic affairs. Of course, when it came to foreign affairs and, and security affairs, they, they, they were powerless uh, to a great extent. So that dynamic continues you know, until the end of the Ottoman Empire. And then what happened to those Arab lands that had been under Ottoman control once World War I ended 
and victorious European powers dismantled the empire. With the end of the Ottoman Empire, you have the parts that remained under, under its control fall into British and French hands. And here we see a whole new international category emerge, which is a very peculiar system. The mandate. The mandate system. It's an incredibly racist uh, system, Daniel, that pretended to be, quote-unquote, civilized. Because it was basically premised on the notion of a civilizing political mission. It was premised on the idea that, that they're going to pay lip service to notions of self-determination, that they were not old-school colonialists uh, in the new realities of the uh, post-Great War period, the, this alliance that had won the war, at least one major power within it was advocating some form of commitment to self-determination. And that, that's, of course, what people often refer to as Wilsonian principles. Again, that's a very highly deba- debated field. And, but what matters for us here is that it produced this pe- peculiar system, the mandate system. And there were different classes of mandates, of course, corresponding to the Europeans' understanding of the hierarchy of civilization. At the apex of the hierarchy of civilization was Europe itself. Of course, you didn't need mandates for European states. So all of those states in Europe that gained independence after the First World War were not put under a mandate system. They gained independence. But other states that belonged uh, to non-European zones were put under mandates. They required tutelage because their civilizations were deemed to be in essentially a childlike state of development. It's exactly the childlike language. It's an infantilizing language. They're going to essentially guide them and uh, bring them up to the level of civilization. And when it comes to the Arab region, it was actually luckier than others because it was put at a a slightly uh, or substantially higher level than, let's say, the regions that were subjected to even greater degree of racism, like some of the African spaces that were put under the mandate system, were basically uh, essentially relegated to a situation whereby the prospect of the establishment of an independent state was uh, almost impossible. Whereas mandates that were imposed on the Arab countries except for Palestine, had some clear understanding that there will be an eventuality of an independent state coming out of it. Now, whether that eventuality was going to happen uh, now or in 10 years or 100 years, it was, it was left open. There was, no, there was no clear temporal limit. And that was part of the trick, is to ensure as much British and French control as was deemed required by these powers. So they didn't need to terminate their mandates in accordance with these mandate agreements because, of course, they gave themselves these agreements. It was a League of Nations. Now, unfortunately, though, Daniel, to this day, the elements and the documents of the mandate system and the terms of it have entered into aspects of international law. They are considered to be part of it, okay, and they're referred to sometimes. And it's quite astonishing because it's, it's um, two imperial powers giving themselves control over all of these uh, people that did not want to be controlled by them. And yet 
some people still treat their documents as legally uh, relevant. So what they did in those states was to essentially, in two of them, they, they instituted new forms of monarchical rule, and that's the difference between Iraq and, and Transjordan and the Gulf. In the Gulf uh, states, there were already existing lo- local uh, ruling or dominant families that were then acknowledged as rulers by the, by the, by the British and, and basically went under their umbrella. The situation was different here. The, the, in, in both Jordan and Iraq, what happened was a British brought the two sons of the Hijazi, Sharif of Mecca, who they went into alliance with against the uh, Ottomans, of course. And who they had promised a Hashemite Arab kingdom to succeed the dismembered Ottoman Empire in the wake of World War I. Correct. That was the whole idea behind the Arab revolt. Why would anybody go and participate in a revolt like that if, if they're not going to get independence? If, uh, and that was the idea, was that Sharif of Mecca will represent uh, and will do a call to all the Arab notables that he knew in different provinces and Arab political figures and social figures and urban and rural and tribal leaderships and get them mobilized and that, uh, you know, they will, uh, as a result, cause uh, serious trouble for the Ottoman Empire as it's trying to grapple with multiple fronts, or, you know, during its war with, with uh, Britain and the other uh, major powers. And, you know, there were many powers associated with it. I mean, there were Australians that were fighting very hard with the, with the Ottomans. There were all sorts of Indian troops. Uh, there were, you know, the whole of the British Empire was mobilized, of course. But... People often talk about this as if it's just a, a random legal aspect of like, uh, well, this document uh, was vague, this document uh, was uh, uh, was saying this or saying that, especially when it comes to the Hussein McMahon correspondence, which is the main correspondence that um, establishes the framework. There's a new book, Peter Shambrook's Policy of Deceit, Britain and Palestine, 1914 to 1939. And he establishes without a doubt the fact that the correspondence was not as vague as people claim and that uh, when uh, the British uh, spoke of an Arab state with Sharif Hussein, they included Palestine within that Arab state. But of course, they included other parts that, that he never got control over as a result of their discussions later on or simultaneously uh, that were happening with the French. Uh, so when we're looking at the map of the mandates, it's important to take into account uh, the geostrategic interests at stake. The British priority had to do with Iraq. That was the real prize they were after out of all the Ottoman uh, lands. Oil was a big factor. There was uh, a feeling that this was going to be a major, major prize on that, on that front and that Iraq will play a crucial uh, role in the future of, of oil. And that's why the, the, the British focused a lot on it. Additionally, it had geostrategic importance in relation to India. And remember, uh, this was a time when the British still had a, a huge amount of investment ensuring that uh, the geopolitics around uh, India are secure. This was uh, something that Iraq had something to do with. But also, 
uh, it was important for Iran, it was important for the surrounding region. It, it has immense value. The French, in the meantime, had emphasis over what is now known as Syria and Lebanon and parts of southeastern Turkey. And they really cared about the issue of ports. Both them and the British cared about them. So for them, their emphasis on, on, on that part of the uh, region meant that they were going to get probably the best port, which is, if you look at the map of the eastern Mediterranean, the uh, area around Iskenderun, that bay there, uh, which is now in the, in the Turkish province of Hatay, is, offers very good port potential. Now, the second great port or the place that has natural potential for a great port uh, is Haifa in Palestine. So one of the powers was going to get the northern one and one of them was going to get the southern one. The, the British pushed very hard to ensure that they get at least a major port in the Mediterranean that they could connect then with Iraq. And for that, of course, then you need what was later on called Transjordan and later on called Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. So you needed like a line, a contiguous line between Iraq and the Mediterranean uh, under British control. Additionally, the British needed uh, control over areas east of Suez because, of course, the Suez Canal was their important lifeline for their uh, empire, the, the most significant uh, canal under their uh, control. And they, it was it's of immense importance for global trade and, and also for military supplies. And uh, for, for the British Empire, it's, it's, uh, it's, it cannot be overstated, its importance. So they wanted to make sure that they controlled Palestine for that reason as well. So... A policy that depends on controlling Iraq and Palestine and having a contiguous uh, line between them then gets translated into the British fight really hard for those parts of the Ottoman Empire. And in the meantime, the French fight really hard to uh, get what they can and in areas that they could muster some historic claims. So we end up with, the, with this division. This went against the lo- wishes of the local population. Now, from my angle and from my bit, I can, I can tell you about the political movements and the influence on the political movements of drawing a map like this. If we consider the political history of Bilad al-Sham and, and the Iraq, Greater Syria and Iraq, which is actually very influential uh, beyond the boundaries of these regions across the Arab world that had a great deal of influence, we cannot talk about any formation without referring to this map. The people in these regions, and certainly the intellectual classes in these regions and the political classes, were almost unanimously united in the demand for independence. You had some people here and there dissenting for local reasons, sometimes occasionally local sectarian reasons, uh, other classes that had some relations with the French and the British. But the overwhelming mood was definitely very staunchly committed to the idea of independence and to a great extent uh, to unity. So that's, that's well established. We know this. We know this from King Crean report. We know this from the writings of the period. We know this in general. But we need to focus more about the specifics of what kind of movements for independence it produced. 
there's a big literature that looks at these movements in relation to the mandate only, but then does not look at their continuity beyond the mandate period. And I kind of, you know, do something different, which is I, I look at the, the two periods as, as being extremely interconnected. I don't think you can study these movements uh, without looking at how they uh, developed initially, but also uh, developed beyond the confines of local space. And sometimes, again, we fall into the trap of national histories when we're examining these movements within the mandate history literature. I'm Naomi Klein, and you're listening to The Dig, my go-to podcast for the most thoughtful, in-depth conversation on the left. It's an incredible place to be exposed to new ideas and new writing. And if you can, please become a sustaining supporter at Patreon. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Jewish Currents, the historic magazine of the Jewish left, published quarterly, in print, and daily online. Subscribe today to receive their upcoming special issue, a book-length reader featuring work published online after October 7th, alongside newly relevant archival pieces with new introductions. Subscriptions start at $48 per year, but in a special offer for Dig listeners, they're 50% off with the code DIG2024. That's one word, dig caps, 2024, no spaces. You'll also receive Jewish Currents' exclusive winter gift, Kaula Ibrahim's play, A Knock on the Roof, which follows a woman in Gaza facing the horror of imminent Israeli bombardment. Dig listeners will be especially interested in Jewish Currents' podcast, On the Nose. Recent episodes feature expert discussions about South Africa's case at the ICJ charging Israel with genocide and labor unions' fraught relationship with Zionism. Find On the Nose wherever you get your podcasts, and please subscribe to Jewish Currents. We've gotten so many compliments about the work that we've been doing over the past few months here at The Dig, and that work simply would not be possible without the analysis provided by Jewish Currents. Subscriptions start at $48 per year, but in that special offer for Dig listeners, they are 50% off with the code DIG2024. That's one word, D-I-G-2024, capital D-I-G-2024. We've discussed how British colonialism was the vehicle for Zionist settler colonization of Palestine many times on this podcast, but we should really pause to touch on it here as part of this larger discussion of British and French colonialism during the Mandate era. Given this general British preference for for indirect, or as you argued, better put, perhaps divided rule, what made Palestine the one place where the British chose to orchestrate a settler colonial project? A project, of course, that led to the Nakba and to the state of Israel and to so much violence and dispossession and conflict across the entire region through the present day. And that will really define the entirety of this lengthy series that we're doing together? I think it's, it's a multifactorial discussion. And uh, I should note from the beginning that there is a very fierce debate around it for reasons that are primarily ideological. So the traditional, for example, Marxist position uh, is that such endeavors are driven by material factors. And that is normally the position I would take. Empires, they, they look at things in terms of 
access to resources, uh, or control over geopolitically sensitive areas that will ensure that they will access these resources. That is generally the case for most imperial expansions, for most settler colonial projects. But sometimes, sometimes the superstructure is acting with relative autonomy. Sometimes that happens, and sometimes uh, ideational factors do matter. So there, we see a tension here in the case of the anal- analysis of why imperialists act the way they do in relation to Palestine, always. It resurfaces constantly. Because sometimes, actually, and, and this is the view that I hold, it is actually an exception to the rule. It doesn't actually change the overall rule. Yes, empires are driven by material factors. However, there is a relationship between the ideational and the material. And as we know from debates within Marxism itself, the relationship between base and superstructure has been even challenged by people like Raymond Williams and others who've emphasized that we can't just think of it in mechanical ways. It's a more complex phenomenon. There is an interplay between uh, bureaucracies in place, the elected officials, uh, the material interests, what counts as imperial interests, even when it comes to the economic, has to be determined by the human mind. So that process of determination is, is very significant. Now, that's point number one. Point number two, when it comes to places like Palestine, uh, Palestine is the holy land. Okay, if you're a religious person, that means something. And you cannot discount that fact, no matter how you try to examine international affairs. For religious people, Holy Land means something else. Okay, so I think some people try to belittle that. Some people try to ignore it. But you cannot understand the Christian Zionist role in politics as being purely materially driven. It would be madness to think that a Christian evangelist in San Antonio, Texas, for example, has a material interest in the colonization of Palestine. Yet, you go to their church, you'll find that there are millions of uh, dollars being raised for for settler colonies there. There are Israeli flags waving. So yes, the ideational does play a role in this. And it did play a role when it came to the British Empire. Now, the British Empire had clear geostrategic interests in Palestine, but there were multiple ways for pursuing them. Britain needed to control Palestine. And I explained why earlier, when I was referencing the port of Haifa, when I was referencing the importance uh, to have an Eastern Mediterranean gateway for uh, Iraqi oil, uh, I was Uh, Referring to that when I was discussing the Suez Canal and the need to have the eastern side of the Suez Canal secure. All the British documents show that. However, when when it comes to what form of government should be established in Palestine and whether there should be a major demographic alteration in Palestine, which is what settler colonialism is. It's, it's saying basically that you're going to change the demographic reality and you're going to change the land ownership structure in a place. And no matter how you try to repackage Zionism, it was about both. Put the, put the ideas aside. It's about bringing a population from outside and 
try, trying to get them to acquire as much land as possible. And that, of course, comes at the expense of the existing population. Now, the British believed in religion, many of them. Some of them were committed Zionists. Some of them had other ideational uh, motivations. Uh, for example, Balfour, and he speaks very clearly about this in his introduction to Sokolov's history of Zionism. Balfour wrote the preface to that. And he talks about how he was always motivated by trying to find a solution for what he called the Jewish question. He was an anti-Semite. His analysis of the presence of Jews in Europe uh, was horrendous. The language he uses is that they are a threat to Western civilization. They should not be part of it. Reflecting on his own relationship uh, to Zionism and support for it, he said that he considers it to be, quote, a serious endeavor to mitigate the age-long miseries created for Western civilization by the presence in its midst of a body which it too long regarded as alien and even hostile, but which it was equally unable to expel or to absorb. Surely, for this, if for no other reason, it should receive our support. So we see here the anti-Semitism of somebody like Balfour. And by the way, this text is widely available for people, just Google it. There are many different texts of this sort. There are internal deliberations within the British cabinet. I've gone through them. They talk openly about these issues. They're discussing it in ideational terms. The national security aspect and the geostrategic aspect and the uh, economic aspect is surely discussed, but it is not tied ever in these discussions to the idea of establishing a settler colonial entity, which goes against the claims of some Zionist authors. For example, there's a guy called Meir Verret uh, who wrote in 1970 that if Britain did not have uh, Zionism, it would have had to invent it. Well, not really. Uh, he was reading it as they used Zionism to, as a negotiating ploy with the French. Well, the reality is actually the British had the guns on the ground. They were going to get Iraq and Palestine no matter what. In the same way that they got Iraq, which is far more important to them than in Palestine, materially. Okay, They were going to get it. And they have Egypt, which all their troops are situated there. There was no way the French would have been able to prevent them from taking Palestine. And even if they took it on the basis of supporting the Balfour Declaration, which is actually a shaky argument uh, or, or issuing the Balfour Declaration, the reality is that they never had the legal necessity or a political one or a moral one for that matter to apply the declaration. That was the position of the British military initially in the initial years when they were running the occupation government in Palestine. They felt that it's too costly for the British. How would you compare Palestinian anti-colonial politics during the mandate period to, to those that we've been discussing that, that took shape elsewhere across the Arab world? In other words, in what ways did the settler colonial context make Palestinian anti-colonial politics distinct? Well, uh, first of all, let's, let's uh, be very clear. Palestinians were well aware of what colonialism is before it happened. And that's because they experienced a very late colonialism. So from the beginning of the situation, when the Great War ended, they sent actually to the Paris Peace Conference uh, a document. 
a protest document on around the question of the plans to settle their country. And, and they said in it, and I'm going to quote here, and it's important to listen to Palestinian voices around this. And this is from the 12th of December, 1918. They said that the principle of right and justice does not allow the oppression of a nation through increasing the numbers of a foreign nation in its country until it's diluted in that place. And they further noted that that's uh, uh, the the sort of, uh, uh, and I'm here, I'm translating from Arabic instantaneously, that's why, it, you know, they're saying that, that that's a remnant of the dark uh, ages and it is not uh, in uh, congruence with the spirit of uh, uh, an age in which justice and uh, enlightenment should prevail. And they said that it, should European Jews migrate to Palestine with, with their large numbers from Europe, quote, the, the rights of the, the, the original inhabitants, the indigenous inhabitants, which are sacred rights, will disappear, will be overwhelmed. So here we find uh, the essence of the issue. Palestinians knew what was happening. Uh, they de- began developing organized structures to uh, prevent it from happening. So initially, they started by uh, lobby. They formed uh, committees, like the one that issued this petition. Uh, these were representative committees. They included people who uh, were prominent figures that represented the politics of the notables in Palestine, but that had a local grounding in each one of the districts they, they, they came from. They wrote these letters. They also testified to the King Crane Commission. They engaged in this uh, activity for a long time. They were confronting two problems, though, which is that this activity presumes that the imperial power will listen to you on an equal footing to that it affords uh, to the settler population. And that's never the case. Settler colonists will always be treated with far greater respect if they come from Europe, even if they're coming from an oppressed minority in Europe. In in this period, we're dealing with an extremely racist reality then, then, and uh, the, perhaps the most telling statement about this whole situation was given by Churchill, who actually was responsible, unlike most people think it's Balfour that's responsible for the colonization of Palestine. Well, Balfour issued the dec- initial declaration, but Churchill put it in law. He created the terms of the mandate. He was the secretary of the colonies that determined what was going to be done with this colony. And do you know what Churchill said about Palestine, Daniel? Do you, do you have any idea what, was, what his view of Palestinians was? I'm going to guess that it was extraordinarily racist. It was unbelievable. And I believe that you will even be shocked when I read it to you. Winston Churchill essentially used bestial analogies to deny the historic rights of Palestinians, as well as other native communities across the, the globe to their lands. Now, explaining the logic that animated him as he was devising the terms of the Palestine mandate, he declared, and I'm quoting him here, uh, I do not agree that the dog in a manger has the final right to the manger, even though he may have lain there for a very long time. I do not admit that right. I do not admit, for instance, that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race 
a higher grade race, a more worldly wise race, to put it that way, has come in and taken their place. I do not admit it. I do not think the Red Indians had any right to say the American continent belongs to us and we are not going to have any of these European settlers coming in here. They had not the right, nor had they the power. So two interesting things about, about this, uh, Daniel, is first of all, these people were very well aware of the global context of this. The colonialists thought of colonialism in global terms. They utilized uh, experiences from before because, again, this is such a late settler colonial project. He's referencing settler colonial projects that happened in the earlier centuries, in the, in the uh, 16th and 17th centuries. But he's still committed to the principles that drove those projects. He sees Palestinians as being closely connected to the indigenous peoples of Australia and to the indigenous peoples of the Americas. And he believes that they should be subjected to the same fate. Because as far as he is concerned, all of these people are equivalent to dogs. A dog can stay somewhere, but they don't have a right to that place. Ownership is only done for superior people, higher grade race people. It's a racialist worldview, uh, uh, Daniel. Of course, we do not endorse that, but we're just quoting it. Uh, I know some listeners will be triggered by it, but it's important for us to see how these colonialists think and hear them speak about their projects. The series we're doing on Arab politics is mostly about Arab politics as they developed in the Ottoman and then formerly Ottoman lands, the Arab Mashrik. But we're going to, with some frequency, have to touch on the Maghreb, Arab North Africa. And in this case, what I want to point out and ask about is that, of course, Algeria was the other main European settler colony on Arab lands, French Algeria. But it seems it seems rather different, including because Algeria was ultimately annexed to France. How would you compare the two cases? There's a couple of major differences, and the first has to do with the settler colonists themselves. Algeria did, did not start with a demand by a potential settler colonist population uh, that France go in and settle them. Algeria started with the French attacking the Algerian coast, and they had had designs on it for a long time, taking it over, then expanding, and in that process, settling in settler colonists. So a geostrategic dimension and the imperialist dimension preceded the settler colonization. In the case of uh, Palestine, you had an actual European movement that had been advocating for a few decades, uh, but not that long, by the way, since 1896, it had been advocating in a programmatic way since the Basel, on the eve of the Basel Conference. Really, 1897 is the real launch of, of the whole uh, lobbying efforts on a big scale. You know, it had been advocating that a European power sponsor a settler colonization project. And I'm using here the terms that were used by the Zionist movement, of course, itself. They called them, they identified themselves as such a project. They were trying to sell the idea to these governments and to convince them that it would offer them a solution for the Jewish question. And in many ways, Zionist leaders were appealing to the anti-Semitic sentiments of these European leaders in trying to convince them uh, to sponsor this project. Now, finally, they found a sponsor in the case of Britain. And the debate, again, is very complicated around that. The literature is huge. 
But this is a different social basis for the whole project. It means that the way it was implemented, uh, it's quite fascinating and it's very particular. Because even before the British occupied the land, they were deliberating with an organization that was uh, intending to colonize uh, the land. And the organization was not your classic colonial company of the kind that colonized the Americas. It was driven by commercial uh, interests. It was an organization that declared that it was driven by moral interests and that, in fact, it is going to invest money in the colonization project. Most other colonial projects, uh, you know, the colonists were out there to make money out of the colony. In this case, there was an influx of money from Europe to this colony and to the settled colonial uh, populations within it. So it's a very interesting relationship. And that was something that the British themselves commented on in, in multiple reports, uh, including the Hope Simpson report later on and multiple other reports, that this is a unique situation. When the Zionists were buying land, they were not interested only in buying land that, that, that will make great profit. Every piece of land was valuable as far as they're concerned because every piece of land would facilitate the eventual takeover of the space. They coordinated with the British very closely the setup of bureaucracies even before the project started. And then once the British took actual military control over the land, they sent a commission to uh, coordinate with the British how these bureaucracies would, uh, would uh, come into play. They got official recognition from the British. They enshrined it in international law at the time which of course we never accepted as international law, but the, the League of Nations was uh, set up by the victors in the First World War as, inter as a representative of international legitimacy. And they then started officially introducing a population to the, to the land with the explicit intention of creating a new national homeland. Again, most settler colonial projects don't tell you, I want to create a new national homeland for the colonists. This is why when people try to say Palestine is, is your classic case, no, it's not, but it's connected. It's connected in the imagination of the colonists, as we saw from Churchill's statements. The methods are often very similar, but the objective here is very clear. It's, a, it's an internal European problem that that uh, was what they were seeking a solution for and that solution in my view was terrible to europe's jews because it wanted to get rid of them and it, certainly and this is something i could speak to more as a palestinian it was really horrific for palestinians the cost of it for us was was huge now in the case of algeria daniel there's no case of anti-colonialism anywhere in the world that has inspired Palestinians as much as Algeria. And what's fascinating about the Algerian-Palestinian relationship, which is, by the way, extremely intimate. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a hint of it, and maybe we can talk later. Uh, Fatah, which is the, the largest uh, Palestinian party historically, was formed as a result of inspiration by the Algerian revolution. 
most Palestinian political parties and movements reference the Algerian revolution in some way or another, whether they're from the left or in the right, from all. And Algeria has always been a space that was very strongly in support of Palestine, even by Arab standards, where you know populations generally are staunch supporters of the Palestinian cause the, the people, the ordinary people. In Algeria, the, the feeling is even more intense. And I, I know this because I have cousins that live there. You know, taxi drivers in Algeria will refuse to take money from you if they know that you're Palestinian. It's that kind of level. You know, it's very deep. Uh, football teams are obsessed, you know. There's also a historic relationship, by the way. All the people we have in Palestine, a big population called the Magharbe, and they often came from Algeria in addition to Morocco. And of course, Hay al-Magharbe, which is where now the area in front of the Wailing Wall, that, that, that was all the Moroccan, the Maghribite neighborhood, which included a lot of Algerians, demolished by the Israeli state after 67. Uh, so what we have then uh, is a fascinating and deep relationship. And Palestinians during the Algerian struggle, of course, supported it. FYI, Daniel, the biggest supporter of the Algerian cause in the UN and the most eloquent spokesperson on it was Ahmed al-Shukhiri, who was the founder of the PLO. Uh, he was, uh, at the time, uh, initially the, the Syrian representative and then Saudi representative in the United Nations. And, you know, he was very active in the heydays of the Algerian Revolution. So we've always had a very intimate relationship with, with, with the Algerians. Their colonial experience inspired us and their resistance against it inspired us. That was the first episode of Tharwa, the Digs new series on 20th century Arab politics, with Abdel Razak Tukriti, who teaches history at Rice University. A scholar of Arab and Palestinian revolutionary movements, he's the author of Monsoon Revolution, Republicans, Sultans, and Empires in Oman, and the co-author of the Palestinian Revolution Digital Humanities website, an incredible resource that will be back online soon. I'll let you know when. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that revolutions are the locomotives of history, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives and newsletters at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter and also now Instagram at thedigradio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or another such site, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling friends, family, people you know, IRL, to check us out. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution or annual contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. <laughs>